this the main thing I've, I've learned to be obsessed about you know, having stamina and running things in a very capital efficient way. Welcome back to Series 10 of 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, we're joined by Nicolas Bousson, the co-founder and CEO of French unicorn BlaBlaCar. BlaBlaCar is the world's leading community-based travel network, enabling over 100 million members to share a ride across 22 markets. Nicolas leads the company's global operations and international growth and has successfully led the company through various rounds of financing and acquisitions. Prior to BlaBlaCar, he was a venture capitalist focusing on consumer internet and telecommunication investments for Amadeus Capital Partners in London, where he led and co-led investments into firms such as Linkdex and Octotelematics. Nicola has had an incredible career to date, so I am beyond excited and honoured that he's joining us here on 40 Minute Mentor. So welcome, Nicola. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, for being a 40 Minute Mentor. How are things? Well, thanks for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Um, we're going to get you warmed up nicely before we dive into your career by asking a few quick fire questions. So if you don't mind, please, can you finish the following sentences after me? Question one, I grew up wanting to be... So really a physicist and not an entrepreneur. So it was a, I loved science and then physics was my first love, I guess. And I wanted to do a PhD and... Uh, and become a physicist, and I get sidetracked, I guess, into uh, into becoming an entrepreneur. Well, I think that sidetrack has been a very successful one, but uh, that's really interesting that uh, it wasn't necessarily what you always wanted to do. So we'll have to dive into that a bit more. The last time I was scared was when? So it was probably, I mean, in terms of being scared, like physically scared, it's usually when I go out in the mountain, which I love to do. I love backcountry skiing, and I do that every winter, and, uh, and there is a bit of climbing involved. And I'm pretty scared of height. So it's something I need to sort of manage and control every time. But I would say last time was last winter, but it's like almost every winter where it's something I need to sort of like you manage. And, and for people who have that, they, they wouldn't understand because it really gets you in the belly and you feel like you're losing control when you're scared of height. So in terms of like physically being scared, that's the moment where I really feel, I really feel it in my, uh, in my guts. So. It's provoked though, so <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you still put yourself in those situations because it's something you clearly love. But and I said that it probably says a lot about you. You're willing to take the risk and uh, you know deal with that fear. To be fair, I love everything else. I just need to to enjoy the rest. You need to overcome that fear, and that's sort of a mental exercise. And it takes a lot of energy. Like when you're scared of height and falling, and you need to manage it. I mean, you can. What you realize is over time, you get better and better. So you get accustomed to it, but it takes like mental and physical energy and, uh, and control, but you are genuinely scared. Like you realize that you know, your body is telling you like something is wrong. You're going to fall. That's yeah. Well, it's, there's probably some similarities there with entrepreneurship and various aspects of founder life where you're having to do things that are uncomfortable. Yeah, no, there is. Although I think it always takes a different shape in a sense that it's never for me, like I'm, if you ask me, like, am I concerned about the business? Am I anxious every now and then about stuff that could go wrong, that bets you make that don't turn good? Yes, but it's rarely the same sort of physical 
feeling, or at least I, I don't react this way. I'm maybe too, maybe introvert or brainy, I would say. So I don't react physically to those sort of like work-related issues and anxiety. It's very different when you're just in a mountain and you feel like, okay, well, I'd rather not fall here. There's a bit of a no-fall zone. And you really feel like you know, your whole body reacts. And it's that moment where, which to me, it's like it's being scared. Your body overrides your brain. So your brain would tell you, it's going to be okay. You know, <laughs> like you're not going to fall, but your body is reacting in a very different way. So. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So thank you for sharing. And I'm sure there are lots of people listening to this that can uh, relate to that feeling. The most memorable day in my career was... It was in early 2012 when essentially two things happened within the same two or three days. My daughter was born, which has nothing to do with the career per se. And we announced the, uh, the fundraising of Excel. And that's when Babacar raised $10 million. And it was after like a long period, which maybe we're going to talk about, of you know, being under the radar and people not believing in the model. And that was sort of the turning point where Babacar was finally becoming a thing. And we had the backing of Excel, which is, as you know, one of the, the top big brand name everywhere in London specifically, but you know, everywhere in the US as well. And all of that could have been like a very stressful moment where lots of things could go wrong. And you're between like, you know, my girlfriend giving birth, first daughter, uh, you know, the funding that could go sideways and da, da, da. And I have like a great memory of that because it sort of worked out and I was in, uh, I was in the zone, maybe not sleeping for like, I don't know, three days. But I had that level of like stamina and energy because you, uh, it all worked out beautifully. And to date, I think it's maybe the most powerful emotions packed in like, I don't know, 48 hours essentially. And uh, it's going to be hard to, hard to top. And I guess now physically, I'm not even sure I could <laughs> do another three days with that level of intensity. That was interesting. So, and again, it could have been like a, for most people, it could have turned into like a horrible, stressful moment. But somehow, for me, it's a beautiful memory. Wow, that's amazing. I love how those two incredibly important moments collided. I guess on the flip side, my biggest failure to date is... Yeah, so biggest failure. So I'll mention one. It's always something I struggle with in a sense that I have plenty of... You know, as entrepreneur, you make plenty of mistakes at the end of the day. The question I ask myself is like, which one do I regret or I will not do? all over again because it was part of the process. And there are very few. So I would say one thing that we we missed on was probably around like 2015, 16, when we were very focused on, which was maybe the right thing to do, but we're very focused on expanding Blablacar globally, launching new countries, opening new markets outside of Europe. We sort of missed out on the level of competition and um and deregulation of the transport market in Europe. So that's when like trains started to react, long distance coach was starting to take off. And back then, I think strategically, we thought, well, you know, all of that is very capital intensive, lots of companies wasting tons of money and it won't last. And I think what we got wrong back then was the strength of the financial market or the, the ability or willingness to fund companies or ventures or, or train companies willing to finance at a loss operations for a very long time and creating more competition in the market is something we, we probably ignored for a bit too long. And we reacted around 2018, 2019. And if I think back about that, it was probably a bit of like a mix of like arrogance on our side, 
but it's also like you looking at your belly button. I don't know if you have this expression in English, like in, we say that in in French, where you just look at yourself essentially. And I think there was a bit of that essentially during that period, where you felt like okay, it's all about the sharing economy, and uh, and we have like a superior model, and it's all going to work out. And I think we could have adjusted to what we are today, this more like multimodal platform offering a, a mix of buses and cars and train and, and something that's more a mix of disruption and mainstream to some extent. Airbnb did that pretty well. You know, if you think of it, it went from like a, a C2C marketplace to a mix of C2C and truly B2C because you have lots of short-term rental within Airbnb. And I think that sort of like evolution, we were not well enough surrounded, maybe not enough self-aware. And it's something where I think we lost maybe a couple of years, if not more, essentially, that then you end up catching up on. So I think it was, if I could time travel, I would maybe change that. That's a really interesting reflection. Thank you for sharing. And I'm sure we'll get a bit more into the detail in a minute. Final quick part question. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? Yeah, so if I go back to my early days, essentially, I didn't know about startups and being an entrepreneur. It was not part of, I mean, my family was not a family of entrepreneur. It was a teacher and uh and my mom was a doctor and they, you know, they had the same job and they, still, they had the same job, essentially all their career, living in the same place. And no one in the family had that. And it's something that's never brought up in school. And I realized after that, so essentially it's not the career path. At, at least it was not in, in France. Maybe it's a bit more in, um, in the US or maybe a bit more in the UK or a bit more right now. But I think it's something that should be explained a bit more as a career path that you can start your own company. Not necessarily just like a startup and you with VC funding and so on and so on, which is a very specific part of entrepreneurship. But essentially, like you know, you're trying to become an employee. Essentially, if you think of like schools prepare you to be an employee, and it creates a divide later on, where you have kids whose parents or someone in the family has been entrepreneurs and they have the code and they understand it's a possibility, and kids that just it's not even there as it's not even an option. It's, I mean, intellectually, they understand what it is, but it's not an option because they don't have any pattern recognition to get into that. So I'm guessing school has a role to play where it should be introduced a bit more, you know, maybe a few entrepreneurs should come like earlier, right? Not at business school, like really earlier when kids are like, whatever, like 12, 14. And, you know, that, uh, at the time I was in love with physics, it would have been interesting to also see some guys saying like, hey, I started my company and here's the journey. So I think that's that link is still missing and would probably help as well in terms of like gender balance toward entrepreneurship. Like it would probably um, enable more women also to see that as a potential path, which is not just like get a job and follow the um, typical um, corporate ladder, maybe go start your own company. So, I mean, it's a broader topic on school. I think school is today is a bit deficient in Europe in general, uh, both in terms of training people in science and entrepreneurship and that yeah, i think it's it is risky at some point yeah i completely agree i've actually had this conversation with a few people recently and one of the things that we're really keen to do is to get 40 minute mentor on the radar of schools and universities because these stories we're trying to share of, of incredible entrepreneurs like yourself are so inspiring but we never heard that at school and like you my parents were teachers i had no entrepreneurial experience and it was really by luck that i ended up creating my own business so i feel like there's an obligation if we want to create if we really want to uh, drive innovation then it's uh, a great opportunity to get kids learning 
I love how already in these quickfire questions, we've already got quite deep on stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk more about the Blah Blah Car journey. But before we get on to that, I guess wanted to quickly understand a bit about your own upbringing in the earlier parts of your career. So do you mind just giving us a very whistle-stop tour of that? Because I know you ended up in VC. So it'd be good just to understand kind of a bit about the early life of Nicola and uh, how you ended up as a venture capitalist. Yeah, so as I was saying, as a student, I was very attracted by science and, uh, and physics in particular. And I loved essentially the fact that you could sort of model and explain the world with equations, which is, if you think of it, that's physics. It's just like what Newton did like a long time ago and trying to, to find a model on why things fall down and so on and so on. And my early career, and again, nothing to do with companies, startup or anything like that, which I knew nothing about, frankly, in 99. And I moved, so post my studies in, in France, I moved to Berkeley to do a PhD, essentially. So the goal was to do a PhD in physics and probably work in a lab and do some research. And uh, and again, like you know, my hero would have been like any Nobel Prize winner in, uh, in physics. I'll tell you a side story on that, actually. And I ended up there in 1999-2000 when it was the dot-com boom and it was the telecom boom. And I had a degree in physics and more specifically in optical science. And it was at the time, so most people, I mean, some people might remember, most people would not even know, but it was at the, the time where the old like fiber optic network was being built and the first internet companies were being built, right? In 99, 2000 was a big uh, dot-com telecom boom. And all the people were just leaving their master degree or, or PhD and, and get hired into companies. And essentially to do almost what you would do in your PhD, like to do, to do like science projects and building semiconductor platform for optical computing and stuff like that. Essentially, it was building this backbone that today we use and we leverage to build like Facebook, Google and uh, Uber and all of that of this world. So I switched to a startup uh, late 99, early 2000. And frankly, it was funny because back then I didn't know what a startup was. I didn't know what like venture capital was. This company had just raised from Kleiner Perkins, which was like a big name in the Valley back then. I mean, still today, it's one of the, the big name in venture back to Google and many other companies before. I didn't know anything about that. So I remember like I joined the company and they, they told me like, oh, yeah, we, we get funding from Kleiner Perkins. And I was like, who's Kleiner? Who's Perkins? Like, who, who are those guys? And that's how I get into, you know, through like being a physicist, essentially, I, I get into um, a pretty early stage startup. And then we had like... Um, a very rough path, right? Because we, so I joined, we were about 30 people. Then we've done like another fundraising of roughly 80, so $80 million, which back then was huge. I mean, today it's still significant, but back then it was like one of the big fundraising in the Valley. So Planner Perkins had put more money, you had more Davido, Intel Capital, a bunch of, um, of at least like the well-known VCs of that era. And then 9-11 came. And 2002 was a very different story. It was the downturn of, I mean, dot-com crash and telecom crash. And it was like a massive downturn in the old Silicon Valley ecosystem. And we went from 150 people to 12. And that was one of the, one of the few survivors in that series of layoffs. And frankly, we were left with a few engineers, the CEO, the CFO, and you know, a couple of folks, essentially, just to be able to run the shop. So we went chapter 11. And we had to rebuild the company. And for me, that was my my real, I would say, entrepreneurship experience came at that time because suddenly it was not this crazy time of like big fundraising and too much money and so on. It became like true entrepreneurship in a sense that we're chapter 11. 
We had some patents and some ideas, but the product was not working. Zero revenue in the company. We had to finish the product and we had no money and it was hard to get money. So you have to be creative. And we managed to turn the business around, get out of chapter 11, refinance the company, finish the product, ship the product, started to make some revenue and eventually sold the company. Not for a crazy amount, actually, but but we sold the company in 2006. And it was sort of a... For me, I was lucky that my first experience early on was this sort of full drama of the the euphoria bubble days. I'll give you a couple of side stories very, very briefly on that. But during those days, we turned down an offer from Lucent Technology, a big telecom company uh, at the time in the US, who wanted to buy us for, I think it was $300 million. We had no revenue, right? Just tech and that's it. We turned it down. We thought like, no way worth a billion and 18 months later the company was bankrupt it was chapter 11 and for me it was you know as an engineer i was like wow something went radically wrong here like within 18 months you're the hottest company in the valley you're bankrupt but guess what like you know, things like that um talking about mentoring i see a lot of companies are going to go through that because 2021 was a bit like 2099 uh, there was a bit of euphoria, crazy valuation, big massive funding in companies whose business model is a bit broken or needs to be revised. And some of these companies are going to go through, well, either they're going to die or they're going to go through exactly what we went through, which is a bit of a refounding moment where, in fact, you just reboot the company. And it's like, I think Sequoia is using these refounding moments for companies. That was one of those where the company was five, six-year-old, if I remember correctly, uh, before it went chapter 11. And then there again, like you, you need to sort of reboot, recapitalize. I mean, all the people who invested lost their money, founders being washed out, and, and you start all over again, and not exactly the same people. So it was like a true refounding moment. And we you know, we managed to, to get through. And for me, it was great learning because I went from like being the expert engineer to suddenly... I was managing a team of like scientists, operations, as we've grown the company back. And during the crazy days, you, you would do everything. Like you would do like shipping and running to FedEx to, to ship the first product. And uh, so you were a bit like engineer and director of operation and, uh, and almost like the, the cleaning person because <laughs> no more cleaning in the, in the lab. So those are good moments where you generally understand like the entrepreneurship on those moments. So, that was the first phase of my career. Then I went into uh, venture capital because I realized after those roughly seven years, right? So it was 99 to 2006. I realized that one of the reasons we survived was, of course, like we, we finished the product and we found customers and all that basic stuff that if you don't have, you don't even exist. But, but also because we had a CEO who was connected enough and smart enough to navigate the funding environment, who knew the right VC, who brought us to Chapter 11, who managed to refinance and recap the company, who then essentially managed to acquire other companies. We've done a bit of an M&A built up to go from like a component company to a subsystem company. And I realized like, okay, that's the thing I need to understand a bit better because I'm very focused on engineering and operation, but there is a bit of this sort of like puzzle and financial agility that seems to matter essentially if you want to become the leader of a company and venture capital felt like good school for that because you you end up on the other side of the table and you see lots of companies lots of entrepreneurs going through like lots of different phases 
So anyway, so that's what I wanted to do. And then I started to Google the profile of VCs and I realized that lots of them were engineers. So it was good. And lots of them had this thing called an MBA. And I was like, okay, that, that don't have uh, this thing called an MBA. So maybe I should do an MBA. And at that time, it was combined with, with something else that had grown in my mind, which was, I'd love to do that in Europe. Like I was like, why don't we have this startup and venture ecosystem in Europe? And it's true that you know, back in... 2000, especially 2004, 5, 6, I mean, it was a bit decimated. You have a few startups, a few VC, but it was like very, very, very small compared to um, to the Valley. It's still smaller, but it has clearly grown in the last 10, 15 years. And I wanted to do that sort of naively in um, in Europe. So done my MBA at INSEAD, which is between Singapore and Fontainebleau and quite international. And that's where I met Fred and we started Blabacar essentially. But Babacar was a very slow beginning. We'll probably go back to it, like a very slow motion at the beginning, like more of a side project. And post inside, I went into venture in London and I did end up on the other side of the table as I wanted to and investing in companies. I think you named a few, but I, you know, I ended up investing in companies in, I mean, obviously in the UK because we're based in the UK, but we invest in Ireland, in Italy, in Israel, in Sweden, in the US. We also went through like a very interesting phase which was the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So not only you know, it was an interesting journey to be on, on the VC side of the table, it was at the time of challenges, right? So when companies were clearly getting challenged, venture capital itself were getting very challenged. So same thing, I've learned a lot from you know, one company got acquired, uh, Securno uh, got acquired by Oracle. Many companies went down. We had to do some refinancing. One went to IPO. And one ended up being bought by a PE. So within that period of time, I had like all the scenarios from success to complete failure to anything in between. And you learn a lot from that, essentially. Like you're not like essentially a, an actor in the sense that you're not driving the car, you're not like running the companies, but you're a very close observer and influencer of all of that, like being on the board and being the financer of those companies. Those were my days as, as VCs. And at the same time, Black Black Art became you know, went from a project to a company, and again, like maybe the moment where BlaBlaCar clearly took off was this 2012, early 2012 moment I described earlier when my daughter was born. And when, when we get the funding from Excel, that's really when BlaBlaCar started to accelerate and became like a thing. And then I left venture capital after roughly four years and I went full-time on BlaBlaCar and then we, we grew the company. Wow. I mean, what a story. And it really seems you can really tell how there's been some very deliberate moves that you've made that have set you up for this founder journey because you've experienced it from different sides, from being in an engineer to, to scaling a company, seeing the, a company through the worst of the worst and then the highest of the highs and, and then seeing it all again from a different perspective. So it's not surprising 17 years later, you've built this unicorn. And does it, have you felt those combination of experiences have really helped you? Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And to be fair, like the move into startups initially was clearly by accident. Like, as I said, my plan was to, to do a research. It was an accident. The move into venture was not. It was thought through and sort of worked out. And then what you get out of it is always different from what you expect, which is interesting. I didn't think going into venture, I would go through like the financial crisis. And at some point I was like, wow, <laughs> how unlucky I am. Like... I just did a move into the finance world and here is like one of the biggest financial crises in, in quite a while. And when I moved into technology and startups, like a year later, it was the same thing. It was the big burst of 
the dotcom burst and telecom burst. I was like, you know, wherever I go, there's going to be a crisis like a year down the road. Well, you've created the resilience for you, Nicola. That's something that, that all founders need, right? <laughs> That's the main thing I've, I've learned, I guess, from those two things was to be obsessed about you know, having stamina and running things in a very capital efficient way, which is very useful right now because it gets lost a bit. And as I said, like you know, when I talked about our mistake, like thinking that you know, those company essentially like running like low cost trains and low cost buses and so on will not survive. It was for me anchored in the fact that I thought all these broken business models at the beginning will not survive because they will not get financing for that long. And we were wrong because we've been like we had sort of 10 years plus of a bull market with zero interest rate and people willing to finance growth at any cost for a very, very long time. Who knows what the next five years are going to be? Like I've learned to that no one is good at forecasting those things, but but it does feel that the next at least twelve months are going to be a rough. Like we are in a different environment where suddenly cash is uh, not trash anymore; it's not free, and uh, and raising money is becoming expensive, and valuations have come down. And I think those learnings from you know, the I would say the harder days and the capital efficient days will become useful to many entrepreneurs. And I think you, you'll see that the great companies are those that will manage those things well, or even those that will start essentially during those period of scarcity. So true. The reason to be optimistic, that's what we want to hear. I think there's going to be some great businesses built in the years ahead for sure. Oh, exactly. No, I, I think you'll have like a fantastic, I mean, that's my bet, like, but a, a fantastic cohort of companies are being studied now, essentially. Awesome. That's what we want to hear. You'll have less noise, essentially. Yes. Yeah, 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 definitely. Before we continue today's episode, I wanted to shine a spotlight on a business we're huge fans of here at JBM. Kit designs and operates inspiring workspaces for businesses looking to tailor their space to their people, brand and culture. From managing the build to partnering with you to create your workplace experience, their experts take care of the office so you can focus on your business. We had a great pleasure of interviewing one of their founders and COO, Lucy Minton, on our COO secret series a while back and have their founder and CEO, Steve Coulson, coming on Fortunate Mental at the end of this series. Until then, make sure you check out the incredible work the Kit team do on kitoffices.com. Now, back to today's 40-Minute Mentor. We've kind of teased our audience with some insights into Balabakar's journey, but without for anyone that doesn't know the business as well, I feel like we should probably, because it sounds like from what you described, it started as a bit of a project. So could you mind sharing a bit more about the origin story and I guess the evolution of Blabacar to what it is today, I guess, for anyone that may not know the business as well? Yes. In a way, we started this company a bit too soon, in a sense that the, I would say the ingredients for something like Blabacar to be successful was not yet there when we started the company in 2007. So it was at the at INSEAD with Fred and, uh, and Fred had started like a website uh, called covoiturage.fr, which means carpooling.com essentially in French. And it was pre-iPhone. Facebook back then was still a closed network. So you had to, to sign up with your university email. I think it just opened up around that time in 2006, seven. The notion that you could create a community of people sharing their car and that people would book a seat in a stranger's car, which was what we were describing back then. We were saying like, well, look, there are plenty of empty seats in cars. It's a massive waste, both economically and for the environment. And we want to build that network where essentially you can book a seat in someone else's car 
which is carpooling in a way, but built as a marketplace and a transactional marketplace on the back of a trusted community. And people always saw that as hitchhiking. So in Geo, like, no, but <laughs> what you guys are doing is hitchhiking online. And that's never going to work because people don't hitchhike. You know, that's something from the 70s, maybe, but people don't hitchhike anymore. And we're like, no, 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 it's not hitchhiking. Essentially, it's a trusted community where you pre-book a seat and you know who's going to travel with you, which is very different from like, you know, sitting on the side of the road and you don't know if you go, I mean, which is like unplanned. You have no trust, you have no payment system, you have none of that. But initially, we're stuck with that. And I would say things changed. I mean, it's a mix of things, as always, like a mix of vectors, I would say, around us that, that sort of made it a lot more understandable, both for consumer and VCs. And it was the fact that having a profile online became a thing. So it was the, for us, it was the first thing. Like if you go back in 2006, 2007, it was only you know, people at LinkedIn, but it was like a small community and it was the beginning of Facebook. But having a profile online at that time meant dating, essentially. That was pretty much dating or professional networks. But this notion that I have a photo and I write people and so on was, was not so much there. Obviously, like, you know, smartphones were not there. It was like um, iPhone came in 2007. And the sharing economy was not a thing, right? And I would say, like, the biggest transition for us was when Airbnb started to raise money from Sequoia and suddenly they encapsulated that concept, which was the same as our concept, which was, is the sharing economy. So essentially, it's like using idle assets and enabling you to make more money with the room in your apartment or your apartment when you're not there and you can rent that on Airbnb and da, da, da. And suddenly, it was funny, like that changed because I remember around 2012 plus, when I was describing the company, suddenly people were like, oh, but that's Airbnb for cars. And I was like, yep. That's Airbnb for cars. Validation right there. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously for good reasons, like it started to work and it became a thing and people, you know, pe- people accepted that concept of you create a profile, you have these trusted profiles and suddenly like, I know you because I have ratings, ID check and all that stuff. And I can trust you to be a good driver and not a weirdo. And there is a financial transaction and it's all safe and so on and so on. But it's interesting to see like how at some point you need as a new idea, a new disruptor like that. You need a frame of reference. And for us, it was so hard in the early days to not be hitchhiking and to be this sort of like sharing economy and marketplace thing. And over time, because there was a movement with lots of companies, many of them actually didn't work. Actually, Airbnb is obviously the poster child of that era. Suddenly, like it changed. And today, like you know, when I describe Black Black Car, people rarely say, it's, oh, it's hitchhiking. They get it. Like They're like, oh yeah, okay, it's just a marketplace with people and profiles and you verify and and we get used to that like when you take like whether it's uber airbnb or many other services it became sort of normalized so that was sort of the the early days of black black car we had to keep the company going between 2007 and roughly 2011 2012 with almost no funding a again because it was not yet a thing and also the financing environment was horrendous. Like talk about it, like it was 2008, 2009, 2010. I mean, during that time, like, you know, even like a very normal, safe idea of like replicating something that happened in the US was hard to finance. And by the way, maybe jumping on that, it was another thing that was very interesting, which I think has changed. Back then, people were also looking at Car, thinking like, who's doing that in the US? And we're like, well, no one is. And maybe it's more of a European thing because... 
the way, I mean, essentially the cost of driving in Europe is so much higher because gasoline is more expensive. And also the setup of the city is so much better to do something like that than in the US that we believe it's a European play. But I think for lots of investors, especially European one back then, it was the rocket internet era. So if you're not replicating or copying something that's in the US just to make it a European play, it's dubious. Again, I think today it has, it has changed. Yeah, well, you've proved them wrong. Any of the doubters, you know, the last 17 years, you've created an incredible business, which is more than a unicorn. You know, it's, it's been incredible. So for anyone that just is, I guess, particularly for early stage founders, scaling founders with those big ambitions, do you mind just taking us through a bit about because it's not all been easy, has it? You've had, you've entered new markets, you've had to scale back, you've had to grow again. Do you mind giving us a little bit of context of where the business is now in terms of headlines and also some of your biggest learnings from some of those challenges that you've had to face over the years? Because I think we want to be realistic to the fact that it takes a lot of hard graft to get to where you've got to. Yeah, so maybe the best way to describe that is like the maybe these different phases of life for the company. So the first one we talked about, your early days and you're just trying to survive, essentially. And I think we've done that pretty well, just like, you know, being hyper capital efficient, keeping that as a project on the side, almost no employees. And the thing was sort of like growing and the product was improving. And then we, you know, we started to do a, a bit of B2B sales, which was not like a, a business model we believed in, but it enabled us to get some money on the um, flowing a bit on the company. So it was selling essentially corporate platform for companies, which we didn't see as a, as a massive thing, but again, it enabled to pay the bills. Then there was like the high growth, I would say, land grabbing phase of the company, which was really between 2012 and call that 2017, 18 or something like that. And that was the phase of fundraising, a unicorn, like we became a unicorn, I think back in, uh, yeah, it was in 15, uh, when Insight invested. And here it was sort of the go fast, clearly you make mistakes, but that it doesn't matter. It's all about speed. It's all about growth. So that was that phase of BlaBlaCar, which clearly what you need to recognize when you do that is you'll make some mistake and at some point you need to clean up the room. And for us, it was like, again, like launching lots of markets in parallel in Europe, outside of Europe, uh, trying to find your playbook to grow these markets. Obviously, you're going to do some mistakes, overspend on marketing, overhire, uh, hire the wrong people. You also end up not knowing what's your steady state output. I often tell that to founders because when you keep on doubling the size of the company, in fact, you have no clue what the company or your staff is able to produce because like your part of your company is just busy onboarding new people and you keep on having new people. So there's a bit of like a hamster in the wheel phenomenon and you don't know what the company, like what's the again, steady state production, so to speak, of your of your staff. So, so we've done that for many years, very fast growth, usage-based. I mean, the usage exploded, the revenue was exploding, loss were increasing as well during that period. Then I would say 17, 18 has been like a bit of a turning point for many reasons. One is we realized that we had way too many things going on, essentially in the company, like too many countries, like we had lots of countries not all going at the same pace, some where we were clearly overspending, we had sort of built like a, a very optimistic plan where we said like, yeah, we're going to grow this community a lot faster through marketing, and then we're going to monetize them a lot faster than we did in uh, in France initially, and you know, we're just going to accelerate and the model, which turned out to be half true, half bullshit in a way, because we, we realized that 
it took more time. We had lots of inefficiencies. It would take more time to monetize those communities. It was not like three, four years, but maybe seven, eight, nine years, essentially, to go and mature uh, these communities and monetize them. So we had to sort of, again, do two things. A was tidy up the room, which meant like in some markets, we had to downscale. So people often think that we closed market. Actually, it's not true. We never closed anything. What we've done is we changed the operating model in some countries where we used to have like um, very large local teams, very large like local marketing spending. And we went into more of a centralized lean model where we said like, actually, maybe it does not make sense. Or at least we don't know if it makes sense. And maybe the radical decision is like, instead of cutting down bits and pieces, cut down everything, see what happens and regrow, which is rough, but at least like you... It's hard, but in truth, that's the best thing to do if you want to sort of find out what works because like, you know, subtracting slowly is going to take forever, whereas you do big subtraction and then you sort of add back in like what, what makes sense. And that's what we've done. So technically, we've never shut down a community. So we've never closed a country or stopped like or in any, any market. We changed the model in markets like Mexico, India, which are interestingly super successful today. So it was not at all a shutdown. It was just a change of uh, operating model. And the other thing we've done in, uh, in 2018 was realizing that we should essentially offer more than just carpooling and we should become this more multimodal platform. And that's what we started to do in 2018, 2019 by doing long distance buses, both in Europe and outside of Europe. And now actually we're going to start aggregating train next year and combining all these trips together. So that was a bit of a, I would say, the hangover phase, like the, the 17, 18. I mean, which we, we've done with like lots of money in the bank and, and good momentum. So it was painful in a sense that suddenly you change gear from like your growth at all costs to, okay, now we're going to reorganize and, uh, and try to do like a bit of a strategic widening of what we do and, and be a bit more, uh, I mean, go back to our capital efficient mindset. Anyway, so that's what we've done. Then we went through COVID. COVID, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. To me, it's more of a parenthesis. It's something like you cannot do anything about. So here you can, I mean, you go with the flow and you try to survive. And that's what we've done during COVID. And we kept on working strategically. So I would say the, the best decision we took from during COVID was we had lots of cash on the balance sheet and we had gone through that exercise I just described pre-COVID. So the company was not burning money essentially. And we had lots of money on the balance sheet. So we could be pretty sort of calm and focused during COVID where we did not lay off anyone. I mean, we just hired less, obviously, than we would have, but we did not lay off anyone and we focused all the engineering staff. So I haven't done any uh, furlough during COVID, which was a very, very strong choice. So people work like like on the engineering and product side, I should, I should say. So on engineering and product, people worked 100% and kept on, and I wanted to gain ground essentially and catch up essentially on, on some of the things that I think we were late on. And we've done that during COVID. And since 2022, so since last year, the, the last really 18 months now, the company has been profitable. So we are on that sort of like um, profitable growth track. So now it's, I would say it's the post-adolescence you know, of, um, of the companies. Yeah, what a journey. It really is. There's so much in there that I'm sure will inspire so many of our listeners. It's just interesting because you realize you end up managing a different animal. So now it's, we talk about EBITDA and cash flow and we could raise debt to do M&A and things like that, essentially. So we are in that part of the journey where essentially we still have growth, but we manage that as profitable growth. And that's maybe the next, uh, I hope it's going to be the next uh, 
the next years is going to be more around that essentially. And, uh, and that's what ultimately any company should get to, right? It can take two years, it can take 15 years, but, but at some point you meant to, uh, if you're successful, you meant to grow, but you also meant to become profitable along the way. And, and obviously, as you can tell, it's not been a linear journey for us, but I'm, I'm glad we get there essentially. Yeah. No, well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm conscious of time. So before we get to our wrap up questions, I really want to ask you about uh, a bit about hiring and culture, because, you know, in order to have had the success you've had, you've needed to nail that. And I'm sure there've been mistakes along the way, like every hiring experience, but you must have built a strong culture. So I'd love just quickly to touch upon any key learnings, particularly any for other founders out there that are maybe struggling with hiring culture. I also know that you've launched some really interesting initiatives in the business that are centered around mentorship. This is 40 Minute Mentor. So I wanted to ask about that as well and just hear a bit more about that, about how those initiatives are bringing your global team together. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to keep that short in being conscious of time. But I mean, first of all, I, I think many companies think they've built a strong culture and they don't really know because sometimes it's it's very young in the story of the company. There is tons of money and the, you, you have lots of party. I mean, you sort of buy culture, if I may. And I think you realize those things in harder moments when essentially you have a bit more scarcity, a bit more a bit more pain, essentially. So for us, we've been through that. So the, the, I would say the culture of the company evolved and, and reshaped. But what fundamentally matters, I think most people, if not all people, join BlaBlaCar for the mission. So like during the interview process, you realize that the environmental aspect of the company, the fact that you know, we have this claim of zero empty seats and we try essentially to reduce the CO2 footprint of cars and turn private cars into quote-unquote public transport, I think it's something that most people embark on. At least you have this common vision, I would say, around the company that's pretty powerful. And I think that's the beginning. That's the key. Like, you, like why are people joining? Like what's the fundamental number one reason people are joining a company? And in our case, I think it's dominated by that. It's not the only thing, obviously. I mean, it's also like because it's tech, because it's fast growth, because it's uh, it has a cool office, because it has mentoring, because of all these things. But I think at the top of the pyramid, you have the mission and the vision of the company, which in our case is very true and very real. And you know it's true and real because people challenge us constantly on that as founders or exec team, where they're like, oh, should we be doing that? Are we sure it's the right direction? Like, is, is it really what we meant to be doing? So it's interesting, like when it becomes like um, your principle and your mission becomes like a reason to challenge decisions and have a discussion around it. I think it's a good marker that your culture is real and uh, and strong. After that, you know, we've built like uh, principles and every, I won't name them all, there are a few, but essentially like whenever you have principles or like values that you stick on the wall in a company, you should always ask yourself, it's the same idea I just mentioned, is it embodied? What are you doing in your processes, in your, what do your employee do that means like in our case, like be the member or fail, learn, succeed. We say st stuff like that. And it's like, what does that mean? Like, when do people do that? And in our case, you have like a member day where you're supposed to use the product. You're going to spend one day in customer service. So all of that is be the member. Fail, learn, succeed. We have constant sessions where people explain essentially like something they've done that failed and how they overcame it and so on. So we have these FLS sessions and so on and so on and so on. And to me, if it's not embodied and if you don't like see that people actually use that almost in their everyday vocabulary in meetings and so on, it probably means it's bullshit. It's something that you would want to see as a founder, but it's not actually part of the culture, so to speak. So I would say like any point of cultural principle you have, 
should be embodied through several processes or narrative, or you should be able to point to something very tangible that represents that principle. If that's not the case, it's rather questionable. And in terms of mentoring, I think like most companies, we've struggled a lot with like training and thinking like, you know, people, I mean, obviously everybody wants to do some training and, and have some coaching and so on and so on. And we do some of that, but we realize that sometimes the best training mentorship you can get is actually from within, right? So we created specifics. We have lots of things like that, but we pushed what we call the, the Rise Mentorship Program for women. So essentially like all the... Um, all the women actually in the company have access to that, but specifically like the, we said the young management layer, they can get a mentor from like more of the VP sort of head of C-level in the company. And you build that sort of one-on-one uh, -on -one relationship of people that can, can be in completely different part of your company. Obviously, like it should not be your boss. And we do this sort of like short sessions. So like typically it's half an hour of like a discussion like this one where the mentee would come and uh, she would come because we mostly do that for women. But we will expand that to men as well. And you do this uh, coaching from within. It works pretty well. So we're going to start like season three of, uh, of that program internally. And it's pretty powerful because frankly, as a mentor, it's so rewarding to do these things. You might feel initially when you do these things that, geez, we're going to waste time and people are going to spend a lot of time on that. But, but actually, it's valuable for both. And in terms of culture, it's very, very powerful for a company to do something like that. So we'll probably do more of these things, essentially. I love that unsurprisingly 40 minute mentor fully supports that uh, mentorship initiative and it's i think it's really important particularly for women coming through the these high growth companies that they have mentors that are actively sort of supporting and helping to lift them up which i think is super important we're sadly at our final three wrap-up questions nicola thank you again for sharing your story but we are on 40 minute mentors so i have to ask if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive who would it be and why in my case, I'd love to have someone that's not from a field I know. And I'd love to have someone like, so I have a name in mind, but someone from an athlete, essentially. So I'd love like Roger Federer or someone like that. So obviously a phenomenal athlete and I'm a big fan of Federer. But also if you think of it, in his case, you could name Michael Jordan in that category and a few others. He's also managed a brand and a company on the side of a tennis career. Because you know, today, like Roger Federer is a brand and, uh, and he managed that so well. Like, you're managing his attitude, his, uh, obviously his, his track record and so on, and he became such a big brand. And obviously, Michael Jordan is the same. Like Those guys are also very, very good businessmen, if you think of it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so true. Tons to learn. Tons to learn from people like that. So I think it would, you would get essentially the, maybe a, a view on your company that's radically different from like what other people like me, like tech entrepreneurs could give you, which is very valuable, but it's maybe easier to access. And it'd be very interesting to get like a, a view of someone like that, essentially as a mentor. That's a great answer. No, thank you so much. Our penultimate question is, we get sent three questions by our audience who knew you were coming on. So can you get, say one, two or three, and I'll see what they've chosen for you. That'd be good. Okay, so let's go to. Okay, perfect. What's your vision for the future of Blah Blah Car? So I think we're still at the very beginning, and it's probably one of my frustrations that if I look at the fundamental model of enabling people to share their car, I think we're still at the very, very beginning of that. And the main reason is that the technology in the car is just nascent and the connectivity of the car and uh, the fact that it's tracked and safe and so on is just getting going. But to me, the, the vision is to find like more use cases for carpooling, specifically on shorter distances, 
on more of a door-to-door experience where essentially what you would need to do is to replicate the convenience of a car while not owning a car and pulling people into the vehicle. So we are experimenting more and more with um, shorter distances, enabling people essentially to pull into shorter distances of like 20, 40 miles, essentially, on the door-to-door experience. And the few experiments we do show that there is like an incredible market there, essentially, that was initially impossible to crack because it's way too hard to crack liquidity. I mean, to convince millions of people to do that. But as we already have millions of people doing that on long distances, now we can get to essentially commuting and shorter distances. So I think that the holy grail of what we do is like bringing that to not just this long distance journey, but your everyday journey when you don't live in the center of London or Paris, like you know, for all the folks living in the, in the suburbs or in more rural area where the car dominates. I think it's still the beginning of, uh, of that journey in the transformation of the car, essentially. Fantastic. And final question, if there's one piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners with today, what would it be? Yeah, I think I'll just pass on something I've heard and that marked me from Vinod Kosla, who's um, the founder of Sun Microsystem and the VC at Kleiner Perkins and then started Kosla Venture. And he was talking, it was more than 15 years ago, he was talking about the challenge of you know, climate change and all the technologies that we need to build essentially to, to solve that, which clearly has not been like the main focus of venture capital and entrepreneurs in the last 10, 15 years. But I really feel now it's changing. And I think the next cycle of innovation, the next 10 years, of course, you'll have AI, you'll have lots of things like that. But I think like it has become a thing. And I think regulations and lots of policies will push essentially the environment toward these businesses. And he said, like, if it doesn't scale, it doesn't matter. He was like, the problem is so big that whatever you do, think of something that can be replicated and scaled. And it sort of marked me in the story of Blah Blah Car. And I think it should, like, entrepreneurs thinking about, like, big companies and, like, that want to really have an impact. They should really think about that. Like, if it doesn't scale, it doesn't matter because the problem of climate change is so big and it's going to take so long to sort of, like, reverse partially CO2 emissions that if it doesn't scale, it doesn't matter. I would do that as an advice. It was useful for me. So uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic place to leave this. Thank you, Nicolas, so much. I know your story will inspire all our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of Fortune Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship. Mm-hmm.